0: Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. Fifteen years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio opensource. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source in Casablanca, USA, on the Warner Brothers lot in Hollywood, 1941. The hope of every Oscar season is that a movie from somewhere, anywhere, can do what Casablanca did in winning Best Picture in 1942. It was a factory product and war propaganda, too. But the dialogue has poetry with goosebump feeling in it and the staying power of high art. It has more famous lines than Hamlet, delivered by bit players and big stars. There were only three American citizens in that film by and about immigrants. It's an astonishing work of screenwriting in a story that flies blind without an ending till the last shot. Our guest, the novelist Leslie Epstein, is our inside authority on Casablanca. The film critic A.S. Hamra is our Mr. Outside. Leslie, get us started. Everybody knows this movie, and almost everybody loves it, but you have lived it almost 80 years. You've been inside this script, and now you've written a novel, a of beans, that metabolizes Casablanca. And you call this this novel a kind of capstone for your imaginative work over a lifetime.
1: That's right, Chris. I've had two major themes in my life and work, which reflect my growing up in Hollywood and being a very young child when World War II broke out. And those are the two major themes. It's World War II slash fascism and Hollywood. And then Specifically in this book, it's World War II, America's first entry into the war, which was the invasion of Morocco. And then specifically, it's the movie Casablanca, which my father and uncle, Philip and Julius Epstein wrote. And it's the intertwining of those two things caused by Jack Warner, who basically drives the plot as he attempts to make sure that that landing occurs
0: at the very same moment that his movie premieres. This is the amazing twist in your book. But you've done things that Jack Warner didn't do in the movie. I mean, you've added Joseph Stalin as a speaking part, and Franklin Roosevelt, and Jack Warner himself, and Hedda Hopper. She may be the nastiest of all the villains in the piece. Also, George Patton, Joseph Goebbels. Joseph Goebbels. Jack Warner gets to play pool in the Kremlin. I mean, wh- <laughs> what were you up to here, Leslie?
1: Well, his idea is that, as I said, he's going to make sure that he bends the war to his own purposes. And to do that, he has to beg, cajole, coerce, and ultimately blackmail all these figures, FDR, Stalin, Goebbels, uh, Hitler even in a way, (laughs) Churchill, to make sure that these two things coincide. Jack Warner was a, a remarkable figure in my family's life. I mean, my uncle and father feuded with
0: him and hated him. And he kind of had contempt for them, or he pretended to. Well, because they wouldn't come in to work at 9 in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) That's a wonderful line. I presume that was your line. Uh, He says, why, bankers get to work at 9 o'clock in the morning. And one of the brothers says, well, go get a banker to write your script. It's not my line. It's
1: my Uncle Julie or my father's line. Another one was they handed in a script, sort of on purpose. It was awful typed up a bunch of stuff at random, handed it into to Jack. Jack called him into the office and said, this is the worst crap I've ever seen in my life. I'm about to fire you two. How could you hand in something like this? And I believe it was my father who said rather sweetly, why we don't understand Jack. It was written at nine.
0: <laughs> I had one of the brothers, I think it was Julius, on our radio program years ago. And I still want to know a whole lot more. What kind of people? I learned from you that they went to Penn. They were identical twins. They were tennis players. They must have been good papas and people. But the work scene sounds like torture. They went to
1: Penn State, not Penn, and they would put Penn State high above Penn.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: They were on the boxing team in the 20s when boxing was a major American collegiate sport. Right. My Uncle Julie was the NCAA bantamweight champion. That was a big part of their lives. You know, the novel, What Makes Sammy Run, uh, is based on my Uncle Julie. Hmm. Julie is the Julian in that Bud Schulberg novel. Hmm. He came out to Hollywood on his own. He had had a little bungalow in the valley. He would write a treatment every single night and bring it to his Penn State pal, Jerry Wald, Hmm. and Jerry would hand it in. Everybody at the conference would say, Jerry, you're a genius. And Jerry's just one minute. And he'd run out at lunchtime and get the next treatment until Julie had his fill of it. And then he insisted on credit. So his first movie was, I think, Living on Velvet with a co credit with Jerry Wald. Meanwhile, my father came out a year later, was at RKO for a while, and then also worked incognito. He has mm. 16 scenes in The Big Sleep. Big Sleep to which William Faulkner contributed, no? That's right. And then they both came out as a team, and wrote well, many, many wonderful films. My father died quite young. My uncle went on to write almost 50 more films afterward. Mm-hmm. They did, you know, Arsenic and Old Lace and Man Who Came to Dinner, and one of my favorites,
0: Mr. Skeffington, as well as Casablanca. So we take these as serious writers doing serious work, and so are you in your novel, *Philippines*. Beans. I take the novel, Leslie, correct me if I'm wrong, but as sort of simulation in novel form Of how a Hollywood movie or a world war gets made. War, celluloid, fiction, all in sync around ego madness, chaos, a lot of good faith, a lot of bad, music like Dooley Wilson's incredible As Time Goes By, flashes of genius, pure chance, bit players, stars, and a philosophical premise that would be hard to prove, but specifically the existential notion that was emerging at the time Casablanca was made, that Free people have finally to choose of their own with no compelling evidence or assurance of an outcome. In the end, you just got to do it or not. And Rick Blaine in the movie, also Ingrid Bergman, (laughs) step up and do it. Well, I think that's very wise, Chris. My
1: original subtitle for this book was not a novel of Hollywood and celluloid. It was Hill of Beans, A Montage. So Mm -hmm. what you say is exactly right. I did mean it to be a sort of a collection of the kind of madness that you talk about. And it's very interesting. I mean, the last thing Julian Phil would have in mind is anything like existentialism. But I think I came across recently an essay that said that Jean-Paul Sartre, of all people, thought that Rick Blaine was uh, just what you said, one of the first people who sort of stood for and exemplified existentialism.
0: Yeah, a free choice on the deadline.
1: Yeah. You know, I stick my neck out for nobody. Amen. But then he sticks his neck out. Right. So he's a a kind of enduring, and that's one of the reasons I think the film has continued to last, and I hope will always
0: last. Well, it's sort of a comic paradox. Can you believe a movie in which Ingrid Bergman goes off uh, with some boring check, and uh, Humphrey Bogart wanders off toward Brazzaville with a French police officer, in effect?
1: That's why the boys had such a hard time getting to the ending. (laughs) You know, the famous story of the ending, they were writing the picture, and Bergman was furious. He said, who am I supposed to be in love with, and what's the ending? That's an existential dilemma right there. The dilemma ended on Sunset Boulevard in Beverly Glen at a red light when the two identical twins, my father and uncle, like peas in a pod, turned to each other simultaneously and said, round up the usual suspects. (laughs) And then by the time they got to Burbank... (laughs) <laughs> they knew who Ingrid Bergman would go off with Paul Henreid and not Humphrey Bogart.
0: Were they identical minds, Leslie?
1: They thought of the lines absolutely identically. I don't know if you were there, but when we did the Coolidge Corner Theater 50th anniversary retrospective, and someone asked Julie whose line is what, he said, "I honestly don't know." And I remember as a kid sitting outside the library where they would be working on a later film. Hmm. And I would hear through the closed door of the library, one of them would go yadda, 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 and the other one would go yadda, 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 and they would <laughs> burst out in laughter. And that's when I thought to myself, this writing game sounds pretty good to me. Oh. You can sleep till 12, play a little tennis, and then write
0: for two hours and make a living. Come back to the quasi comic fundamental premise that gets into your novel, Leslie, that. President Roosevelt needed a popular movie to sell a war on Hitler in North Africa. At the same time, Hollywood needed a real war to sell Casablanca, their movie, in progress. And from there, Jack Warner and FDR conspired to get their agendas in sync.
1: Well, I think that's true, but uh, Roosevelt had to have his arm twisted by blackmail. in order to do it. Explain. I mean, this is more Jack's project than FDR's. FDR was forced to go along, at least in my telling. I think your telling is probably more more accurate, Chris. The great thing that Jack Warner did, and he was a terrible man in many ways, and the book doesn't hide from his misogyny and his racism, and he was a man of his times and worse. But the great thing about Jack Warner is he wasn't afraid, as everybody else in Hollywood was. So he made Confessions of a Nazi Spy, hmm. in which Goebbels appears. And it's against the German-American boon. It's a very brave movie that, in fact, endangered Jack's life. But Goebbels thought it was a wonderful movie for propaganda purposes, and he studied it, and he had hmm. everybody else study it. But he refused to allow it to be shown in any
0: movie theater, anywhere in the expanded Third Reich. Hmm. Can I just say for the movie, Leslie, that for me... The very substantial beauty here is finding a jewel, an artistic jewel, in a popular product. And there are lots of others. My father told us growing up that the Disney movie, Dumbo, was high-eyed, and the Jerome Kern song, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, for example, and Casablanca, surely. It's also a very deep study in a man, Rick, a furious cynic who sticks his neck out for nobody, as you say, but he sacrifices his love for Ilsa in the last seconds. He's standing up to embody that principle that between love and duty, facts, rational analysis, ideology, don't cut it. A man has to embrace his freedom and invent his way through. Jay Carr, famous movie reviewer, said it well. Bogey, single-handedly solved the biggest problem facing any young generation, how to keep your integrity and still be cooler than everybody else in sight.
1: Well, that's Rick Blaine. You're quite right, Chris
0: of all the gin joints in all the
2: towns in all the world, she walks into mine. What's that you're playing? Oh, just a little something of my own. Oh, stop it. You know what I want to hear. No, don't. You played it for her, you played it for me. Well, I don't think I can remember If she can stand it, I can. Play it. Yes, boss.
0: Coming up, A.S. Hamra, the writer who watches movies, not to dissect them frame by frame, but to feel what's going on. This is Open Source. A.S. Hamra, known as Scott, made it to the top rung of movie critics, writing essays more than reviews for N Plus One and now for The Baffler. Casablanca is a special case for Scott Hamra. He's watched it hundreds of times and managed to get to know it intimately long ago on the job.
3: Well, I was a projectionist at the Brattle in Harvard Square in the 1990s for about seven years, and I projected Casablanca a lot of times because twice a year they would show Casablanca for a week during Reading Week at Harvard, as well as other Humphrey Bogart films.
0: Right.
3: And, you know, the cult of Casablanca starts both in France and in Cambridge, Massachusetts, after Bogart's death at the Brattle, which, you know, was also owned by the Janus Theatre people, Hmm. which is now Criterion. Ah. You know, Casablanca, in a way, is the first cult film. It's a film that kind of transcended Hollywood Mm -hmm. by being the ultimate product of Hollywood at the same time. That's a film that is purely a product of the studio system, but doesn't seem compromised at all.
0: That is a mystery. We've got to solve
3: that somehow. Well, Michael Curtiz, the director of Casablanca, uh, emigre from Hungary, is not considered an auteur to the same extent that other directors at Warner Brothers at the time were, like um, Raoul Walsh or Howard Hawks, who made The Big Sleep. Hmm. And so his, his participation as an artist is different than theirs. It's perceived now. It's often used as an example of an anti O'Tourist film that came together despite not having a presiding artistic presence. Mm-hmm. Not that Curtis wasn't an artist, just that his personality doesn't impose itself as much on the films that he makes as other directors do. And, you know, in this case, it serves the script that Leslie's father and uncle wrote so well.
0: Well, they're stars of the production, but they're also rebels in the company.
3: Yes, the, the Epstein brothers were, yes. But the film wasn't made as an act of rebellion by Warner Brothers. Of course not, no. So, you know, it functions as this perfect product of Hollywood, but it kind of transcends that, too, without seeming like art. You you mentioned that it was art, like Dumbo and uh, Smoke It's in Your Eyes, the song. But part of the mythos of Casablanca is that it isn't art in the same way that a you know Hitchcock film is. Hmm. Uh, Umberto Eco, the Italian semiologist, said that Casablanca is not a movie or it's not one movie it is mm. movies he said mm. so casablanca represents all movies but he also said that the the way it does that is without the presence of art
0: what, what, what does he mean it represents
3: all movies he he means that it's like the perfect platonic idea of a hollywood movie from
0: that period meaning and, and what particulars
3: you know it's it, the way the narrative is constructed the heroism of bogart the character actors The swift motion of the story through the film, the beautiful photography in black and white, the production design, which was all done in the back lot and at Van Nuys Airport, you know, in in studio created fog at the end of the film. Fog in the desert. Yeah, that's right. It's fog in the deserts of North Africa, which is actually Van Nuys. (laughs) And a great
1: love story, too.
3: Yes. And a great love story. And importantly, the film doesn't cop out. It doesn't have a happy ending.
0: You've noted, and I looked again, you're so right, so much happens in the first five minutes even before the stars are introduced. It's chop, 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 and all of it interesting in, in, in Casablanca, California.
3: That's right, Casablanca, California on the Warner Brothers lot. The first 12 minutes of the film or so are very, very swift, and a lot of characters are introduced. Even by the standards of a Hollywood narrative of the time, a lot happens in the first 12 minutes of the film. We meet many of the character actors we'll see throughout the film. There are tourists and other people who only appear in the beginning. A man is shot in the beginning, and then we meet Rick. But the film doesn't really let up until the song Knock on Wood is performed in the club with Sam Dooley Wilson playing the piano having the audience in, in the club sing along and clap along. Mm. So there's a sense in Casablanca that, in addition to fighting the Nazis, that the film is making the world safe for American-style entertainment. <laughs> and that's something that Leslie's book, his novel, really gets at, I think, that, that this is about soft power as well as, you know, the U.S. military fighting the Nazis in Europe.
0: It's also a great hymn to immigration, Emigration, immigration, the United States is the ultimate refuge, and, as you say, not just party place, but social organism.
3: Yes, the uh, cast of the film is made up mostly of European emigres. The only Americans in the film, I believe, are Humphrey Bogart, who plays Rick, of course, Dooley Wilson, who plays Sam, and Joy Page, who was Jack Warner's stepdaughter, who plays the Bulgarian girl who wants to move to the U.S., and uh, Dan Seymour, who plays the doorman, he plays a Middle Eastern, I guess he's a Moroccan doorman. Those are the only Americans. The rest of the great cast is made up of people who mostly had to flee Europe and went to Hollywood. Peter Lorre, Leonid Kinsky, Kurt Bois. I've never really known the correct pronunciation of his last name.
0: Yeah, Yvonne... Who sings the Marseillaise, Carl the Waiter? I love that guy, and that might be my favorite scene where he's serving a meal to an elder couple who are rehearsing their English on their way to America.
2: To America?
0: <laughs> to America.
2: <laughs> to America. Liebchen. Sweetness hat. what watch? Ten watts. Such much? You will get along beautifully in America. <laughs>
3: Well, well, you know, Chris, I've seen the movie many, many times because I had to project it so often, and I would listen to it. <laughs> Those two people became the most annoying people in the movie. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I just dreaded listening to that hokey scene. <laughs> my favorite line in the movie is when Bogart says to the uh, Bulgarian girl, you want my advice?
2: If someone loved you very much so that your happiness was the only thing that she wanted in the world, and she did a bad thing to make certain of it. Could you forgive her? Nobody ever loved me that much. And he never knew. And the girl kept this bad thing locked in her heart. That would be all right, wouldn't it?
3: Do you want my advice? Oh,
2: yes, please.
3: Go back to Bulgaria. The uh, the worst advice given to anyone in a 1940s film in Hollywood.
1: Can I uh, interject something here? Please, Leslie. Uh, you hit on something when you brought up immigration and you asked the question, is, why is this film the film that it is? And I think that's a neglected uh reason for its success so many of these people including uh, the great dalio uh, who was the star of two of the greatest movies ever made and uh, renoir's uh, rules of the game and grand illusion so many of these people themselves escaped from hitler by the skin of their teeth hmm. and they knew what they were shooting they knew the atmosphere they were soaked in and they gave that atmosphere, I believe, to the film. And one of the mm. stories I've heard was that when uh, Madeleine LeBeau sings the Marseillaise, everyone was in tears. It's not just the mm. American audience now that I think often is in tears. It was everybody on the set when that song was sung. In a way, it was, I think, inevitable that the film should hold, maintain and reflect the world of 19... 19- 39, 40, 41, and 42, because those people were living it.
3: Mm. Marcel Dalio was married to LeBeau uh, at the time.
1: And divorced her before the film was over.
3: (laughs) Yes, and they they came to America, I believe, through Mexico or Canada from France. But Dalio, who was a great star in the two Renoir films that Leslie mentioned, plays the croupier in Casablanca that fixes the wheel so that Mm. um, the Joy Page character will win the money. (laughs) <laughs> he, he he, and his scenes, to me, is remarkable because in in that in just that brief one scene where he's standing at the table running the wheel, he kind of becomes the star of the film.
2: Do you wish to place another bet, sir? No, no, uh, I guess not. Have you tried 22 tonight? I said 22. Mark on the jeux, mesdames <laughs> et messieurs. Les jeux sont faits. La partie continue. Mark on les jeux. Fini. How are we doing tonight? Well, a couple of thousand less than I thought there would be.
3: And he acts like he's the Mm. star of the film, too. He's very confident in a way that you don't normally associate
0: with people that would have a part that small in the film. I'm wondering, Leslie and Scott, who put that whole notion together that this is going to be a showcase of immigration?
1: Oh, you know, Jack Warner, this villain, did another nice thing. These refugees would come to Hollywood. There were various organizations and the studios and and Jack in particular would provide them jobs or Mm. not jobs. He would just pay them 50 bucks a week or 100 bucks a week to let them survive in this new Mm. world that they had come to. And here was a chance to throw so many of them together in the right film for them to actually work and not just be paid on the side.
0: Mm.
3: And also part of it, I think, is that the director was also an emigre from Europe, although he'd come in the late 20s to Hollywood. Michael Curtiz was from Hungary. And so his relationship and ability to direct all those actors is probably a little bit different than American directors who were born in the U.S. Hmm. And, you know, he was known for his poor English skills. He's one of the great malaprop, uh, you know, deliverers of classic Hollywood you know, Bring on the Empty mm. Horses is a line from Curtiz that became the name of a book by the actor David Niven. Uh, oh. So I think Curtiz's ability to kind of corral all these people together and direct them as an ensemble is significant.
1: My favorite line of Curtiz is when he did get an Oscar and his speech was, Always a bridesmaid, never a mother. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And Curtiz is a character in Leslie's novel. He's not one of the main characters, but he's present and delivers lines like that in the book.
0: Scott, you can speak to this more objectively than Leslie can, but it's about the writing. I, I saw this movie again the other day. The writing is simply staggering. It's not just those famous lines, you know, we'll always have Paris or kiss me as if it were the last time. But the interaction, the dramatic fusion... Well. Speaking of favorite lines, mine might be when the Nazi officers in Casablanca are sitting around saying, how are you going to like it when we get to London? What is your nationality? I'm a drunkard.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And that makes Rick a citizen of the world. I was born in New York City, if that'll help you, honey. I understand that you came here from Paris at the time of the occupation. There seems to be no secret about that. Are you one of those people who cannot imagine the Germans and their beloved Paris? It's not particularly my beloved Paris.
0: Can you imagine us in London?
2: When you get there, ask me. (laughs) Diplomatist. How about New York? Well, there are certain sections of New York, Major, that I wouldn't advise you to try to invade.
0: It's the dramatic interaction of these things. They go bing, bang, bang, back and forth. I love the scene when Ilsa comes back to the cafe and eventually draws a gun on Rick. Richard, we
2: loved each other once if those days meant anything at all to me. I wouldn't bring up Paris if I were you. It's poor salesmanship. Please, please listen to me. If you knew what really happened, if you only knew the truth. I wouldn't believe you no matter what you told me. You'd say anything now to get what you want. There's so much at stake. All you can think of is your own feeling. One woman has hurt you and you take your revenge on the rest of the world. You're a a coward and a weakling. I'm sorry, but but you you are our last hope. If you don't help us, Victor Laszlo, we'll die in Casablanca. What of it? I'm going to die in Casablanca. It's a good
3: spot for it.
0: It's all unbelievably good drama.
3: Well, many of the best lines in the film are kind of throwaway lines. The best one, in my opinion, is I was misinformed. Oh, yeah. I've often speculated on why you don't return to America.
2: Did you abscond with the church funds? Did you run off with the senator's wife? I like to think that you killed a man it's the romantic in me it's a combination of all three And what in heaven's name brought you to casablanca my health i came to casablanca for the waters the waters what waters we're in the desert
3: i was misinformed (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's done so casually and so beautifully and it's not a complicated line of you know it's not an oscar wilde line or something but it's, it's a line of great wit, and it just works so well in that context, which is near the beginning of the film and explains a lot about Rick's character. How many other 1940s movies speak at that level? Well, To Be or Not To Be came out the same year, the Lubitsch film about a group of Polish uh, actors trying to escape the Nazis with Jack Benny and Carol Lombard.
0: to be or not to be is not a bad line, but that's a steal. (laughs)
3: Yes, that is. But certainly the the screenplay for that film is more witty than Casablanca. It's a comedy, but it's done at a very high level of sophistication. And, you know, Hollywood in the the studio system was not uncommon. I don't think Casablanca was seen as uh, exceptional in that way when it first came out at the end of 1942.
0: Well, I'm also wondering who enforced that standard or who encouraged that standard, sustained it, rewarded it, in an atmosphere where Jack Warner was, you know, looking down on these Epstein boys. It was sustained by a mutual sense amongst writers that they had to produce good
3: work, I think. I'm sure Leslie knows better than I do.
1: Well, let's give the American public some credit, too. I mean, the kinds of movies they were watching then compared to the basically teenage or infantile films that are made now in the studio system... There was a level of sophistication in America then that just simply doesn't exist now.
3: Well, it exists, but it's not served by studio films that are made in Hollywood anymore.
1: It, yeah, but the reason why it's not served is that uh, one theater on the edge of town will show it and nine people will show up.
3: Right. Well, this is the product of uh, trade and practices in Hollywood more than the actual audience.
0: Yeah. Well what, What's your account of why, Leslie? What happened? I don't know what happened. What happened is what's
1: happened to America in general,
0: I think. Uh, Ronald
1: Reagan happened, the the distrust, the division. Where we are in politics is reflected always in where we are in culture and vice versa.
3: What happened was the blockbuster became the dominant form of filmmaking that didn't exist in the 1940s.
1: But the blockbuster is aimed at
3: 14-year-old kids. That's right, because the studios decided in the late 70s that the audience was primarily 14-year-old boys, which is not true. But another thing about Casablanca that's different is how immediate it was, because it takes place in the present of the time it was made. A lot of films Mm. now take place in the past. Uh, They don't address contemporary conditions in the way that Warner Brothers movies in the 1940s did.
1: That's interesting.
3: Yeah, they're sociologically disconnected from not only reality now, but also Mm. from the time in which we live.
1: Warner was famous for taking on grim reality. He would deal with uh, gangsters. Uh, all kinds of corruption. You're right, Scott. I hadn't thought of it, but we turn our backs on that now.
3: Warner Brothers was also known at that time for, you know, even though Jack Warner was a Republican and a great capitalist, producing films at his studio that dealt with labor issues and social unrest, especially in the 1930s, before World War II. And that's another thing that has exited the screen of films made by studios.
0: You mentioned Ronald Reagan, Leslie, Ronald Reagan, who invited Warren Beatty to show his movie Reds in the White House and said to Warren Beatty, according to Beatty, well, there's no business but show business now, Warren.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, Reagan watched a lot of movies in the White House. A book came out by one of Reagan's handlers about watching Mm. films with him over the
0: eight years of his presidency.
3: It's a very
0: illuminating book. What did he think of Casablanca? He was mentioned as a possible Bogart.
1: Yeah, and Sheridan for the in- Ingrid Bergman part. I think it was mostly rumor, or it was the studio press release saying as much, but it was just to tantalize people. I don't think they ever really seriously thought they would do that. Julie used to tell me stories about Ron Reagan in the commissary at Warner Brothers. He would always try and come over to the writer's table. And when the writers saw him coming, They'd throw a jacket over a chair <laughs> and, and say, sorry, but Billy's going to be here I mean,
3: <laughs> Billy who? Wilder or any other Billy, anybody. Well, you know, Reagan's most interesting film probably came out the same year as Casablanca, which is King's Row. It was his favorite, right? You know, that's the kind of film that you would not expect to see Ronald Reagan in. But I guess we're getting off the subject.
0: The subject is Casablanca, the best picture in 1942. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not
2: tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have. We we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid.
0: Coming up, the winding road to the Hollywood of 2021. This is Open Source. With Leslie Epstein and A.S. Hamra, the Hollywood conversation gets sooner or later to the streaming services and blockbuster franchises of today. I'm puzzling. How is it Hollywood cannot seem to produce a movie with the qualities that it still worships in Casablanca? David Fincher's Mank, out front in the Oscar race this year, seems to me a case in point. Here's Scott Hamra. Did you see Mank, Leslie?
1: Yes, and I'm sorry to say, I think it's a failure.
3: Yeah, I don't like it either.
1: I mean, there's the whole business of the, the whole political side of it, the Upton Sinclair side is there and then dies. And the main side, which is a rivalry between Orson Welles and Mank, barely shows up in the film at all, never comes to a climax, is never really dealt with.
3: It's a very plot heavy film and it spends most of its screen time just making plot points, which is the opposite of how Casablanca is constructed which has a very swift and obvious through line to what the problem is as soon as Ingrid Bergman shows up in the film. And the film is also riddled with errors about history. Like what? Well, the whole idea that Herman Mankiewicz is primarily responsible for Citizen Kane has been debunked as early as, you know, the mid-70s. It was the Pauline Kael theory. And, you know, Mank is filled with scenes like, you know, having seven writers meet essentially in a writer's room, and then have to have a meeting with David O. Selznick and Joseph von Sternberg at Paramount where they discuss horror movies. You know, and the writers are all very famous people like George S. Kaufman and S.J. Perlman and Ben Hecht. This is just not accurate to the time. The film is really more about the present and how television is made and about fake news and reality television and things like that than it is about classic Hollywood.
0: You anticipated me on the Kaufman, Perlman Hecht gathering. You see glimpses of this star-studded writer's room but you never see them working. I mean, I would have loved to see Julie and Phil banging out those lines, a lot of them probably impromptu, at a streetlight or not. But we don't get any insight into how this movie is actually being composed.
3: Well, we see Herman Mankiewicz writing in bed in Victorville, I guess it is, California, and he needs booze to write. So it's a kind of romanticized view of how writing is done.
1: Hollywood used to do that all the time. You'd see Beethoven at the piano going... (laughs)
0: But the question is, Hollywood can pay tribute to it, but it can seem to do it. What's the problem?
3: Well, you know, Mank is is an exception to most Hollywood film production today because it's kind of a vanity project that was made for Netflix. It's a Netflix movie. It's not being made by the people that make all the superhero movies. Yet it still doesn't quite work because it's trying to romanticize a certain era, but comment on our times as well in a way that the film hasn't fully realized. One thing about Mank that's interesting is that the phrase hill of beans appears in it.
1: Oh, I didn't, I forgot.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Which is the name of Leslie's book. And of course, one of the most famous lines in Casablanca at the end of the film. Right. The problems of two people doesn't amount to a hill of beans in this. I can't remember it exactly in this this crazy world. Yeah. Gary Oldman has to say hill of beans, I believe in Mank. And the one thing that it has in common with Leslie's novel is the way that certain famous phrases and witticisms from Hollywood in that period are interwoven into the narrative, even though they're things that Herman Mankiewicz didn't necessarily say himself. You know, he quotes Groucho Marx. He has that famous line about the white wine coming up with the fish at the party in Mank at Hearst's Castle in San Simeon, which was not something he said, I don't think.
0: Leslie Epstein, you... We're in knee pants in the highest moment of writerly Hollywood. And I want to hear more about it. I was going to say, would you would you let a child of yours become a screenwriter, much less marry a screenwriter, uh, which you did, and they're enormously successful and important people. But what is that world like, really?
1: Well, I just looked down. I'm still in knee pants, it turns out. <laughs> 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 there would be parties uh, around the pool at our house. It was called the Fox and Mox Society. Uh, Liz Taylor came around right after she did National Velvet, <gasps> spilled the cake that she was carrying. The, the guy I was closest to was um, Tony Curtis. Tony, was, he was a terrific guy with us kids, and I would play billiards with him at our house. I knew from a child's angle these people, but remember, Julie and Phil were screenwriters, uh, also known as schmucks with typewriters, <laughs> And so they didn't, I didn't have that direct align to Hollywood. It was a fairly quiet life for the screenwriters. Politics interfered and the House and American Activities Committee and various relatives of ours who were called up and had their lives ruined. So the interconnection of Hollywood and culture and politics was always important to me because mm. I, I saw the ruin that occurred in the wake of 1940s and especially 50s politics.
0: Were the writers on the defensive by that time?
1: Well, Julie and Phil were, I mean, they, they were, I remember one huge debate in 1948 with the two of them. I was listening as usual behind the closed door. Uh, do we go for Henry Wallace or do we go for Harry Truman? It's the mm. first time I ever heard the phrase, the perfect is the enemy of the good. They voted for Truman and I ran around the neighborhood I knocking on doors as a 10-year-old for Harry Truman. Uh, Gregory Peck, lived up the block, I knocked on Peck's door, and he signed the petition, and therefore Truman won. Our trouble was that 1947, Jack Warner appeared before the House of American Activities and named my father and uncle. And they said, why were they un-American? Uh, that's, you know, the, well, why, why, Mr. Warner? These two Epstein brothers, why were they un-American? Beside being Jewish, that would be the subject. And Jack said, "The words almost literally were, They're always on the side of the underdog, and the rich guy is always the villain, which to me is the essence of Americanism. I grew up thinking you're supposed to be for the underdog. It's why everybody rooted for the Dodgers in the old days, right? Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: my father and uncle were handed a subpoena by the House and American Activities Committee and asked to fill it out. And the first question was the famous question are you now or have you ever been a member of a subversive organization? <laughs> and the second question was, if so, name that organization. And they filled it out. Have you ever been a member of a subversive organization? They said, yes, we have. And would you name that organization? And they wrote down Warner Brothers. <laughs> is, that, is that your Epstein wit or theirs? It, it's not wit. It's true. Wow. They had the guts to do it. And the committee never called them up because they knew whom they would have to deal with.
3: It's amazing the transformation in American culture before and after the war, because many films by Warner Brothers in the 30s and early 40s were for the underdog and against those in power and against the wealthy. Hmm. But, you know, the atmosphere after World War II changed so that, you know, the communist witch hunts began and, you know, America needed a new enemy. And that changed the tone and thinking of people.
1: It's a switch as an enemy from fascism to the enemy being communism. And now I think it's getting pretty clear that the enemy is fascism once again, both abroad and increasingly at home, as we saw on January 6th.
0: Yes. I want to note, Richard Brody in the New York has an interesting point about Mank, that Louis B. Mayer is a figure in the film. But the moral, as he reads it, is that Beware, Netflix is the new monster studio system. They make it, they own it, they show it as a kind of vertical, horizontal monopoly, and it's going to have to be addressed. Well, it's
3: not going to be ha- have to be addressed. Why is it going to have to be addressed? They're running their business like studios ran their businesses before the Paramount Consent Decrees in 1948. Well, exactly. This has changed the entire business already, and that's why streaming is taking over from movie-going in theaters, and the pandemic has only helped that, you know, more. Netflix, Chris, is making, I think, 72 films this year. Oh, exactly. That was Brody's point. A studio like Paramount makes five films. They can't compete with this. It is an antitrust problem, but I don't think it's going to be addressed.
1: You know, I'm watching something now streaming. The great Russian novel, or the great novel since World War II, is Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman. Yes. It's a superb, superb series, one-year series, Life and Fate. Other things like uh, *A French Village. I think the product on Netflix and Amazon Prime and the others is better than what's coming out in Hollywood. It's not cartoons for kids. And in some ways, it's gotten me through this pandemic. Uh, I can watch adult things uh, at home and where I'm being asked to look at cartoons in theaters.
3: People are asked to look at cartoons and theaters when it comes to films that are made by Hollywood. It's not the entire world that's like that. And the loss of movie going would be a significant loss to the social life and meaning of uh, of America and of the cinema, if that happens. I agree. So, you know, living in New York City, this is not a problem because there's so many independent theaters and revival houses and art theaters and places that show all different kinds of movies. You know, Anthology Film Archives and Metrograph and The Quad and Lincoln Center and many other places. Most of the rest of the country is not like this. In many parts of the country, you have to drive, you know, 30, 40 miles sometimes to get to one of these giant cineplexes that's in a mall where all the stores are closed. So, you know, Hollywood really backed themselves into a corner when they went full blockbuster and full cineplex. Mm. They did not ever see a day when their business model would be challenged or, you know, routed. And the pandemic and the streaming giants have done both those things to them.
0: Leslie, what do the young writers in your family, heirs to your own work and Phil and Julius, what do they say about the alternatives, the freedom, the joys, the miseries of writing scripts today? Well,
1: if you mean my daughter and her husband, there's a lot of misery, but also a lot of opportunity. Danny Futterman, my daughter's, Husband has done wonderful work. He did two scripts, Capote, and then the script about the, uh, the wrestlers and the, the murder. Foxcatcher. He's done two screenplays and nominated for the Academy Award for both of them. You know, he's a Columbia boy, he, he has his standards and he, he's in a situation now where he can pick and choose. Anya worked on The Affair, for example, and when The Affair turned lousy in the third season, uh, she was able to walk off, but she is more a victim of the system than he is right now. So it's sort of interesting to see those dynamics play out in my family with a younger generation.
0: And two enormously successful writers.
1: They they are, but not that there isn't struggle, Chris.
3: Yeah. Also, the new model of streaming is that there are no residuals paid to writers.
1: We never got a penny for Casablanca. <laughs> right.
3: That's why it's like the studio system again. Yeah. And a lot of writers in New York, you know, want to move to California now and write quality drama and do comedy shows for the streaming services. But it's to me it's kind of like when the Jodes all moved to California in The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> you know, they're going to get there and there was, you know, 10,000 people ahead of them that will all want to do the same thing. The difference is that the Jodes were fleeing from an uh, environmental disaster and people that want to move to Hollywood now to write Uh, streaming shows are fleeing into an environmental disaster.
1: Mm. Can you imagine Grapes of Wrath, the movie, being made now, Scott?
3: No, absolutely not.
1: Mm -hmm. It was a very faithful adaptation, was it not, of, of the great novel?
3: Yes, and to me, it's better than the novel. I think that Ford and Greg Toland and Henry Fonda really transformed that into something that is beyond the novel in a way. Nomad Land is like the modern Grapes of Wrath, right? Yes. But it, it doesn't have the social reality of the Grapes of Wrath. Because in Nomad Land, the character has made a choice to live that way. Mm-hmm. You know? It's almost like a lark for her, although it's presented as a conflict in her life. And the Grapes of Wrath, it's not a choice. They, they are impoverished and they have to leave because the land on which they live is reclaimed by the bank. She's fleeing a mining town that's a ghost town because the mining company is, is closed. So that's similar, but then what happens in the rest of it is not the same thing. It doesn't have the same attitude towards poverty and displacement and precarity that The Grapes
0: of Wrath has. I'm not clear, Scott, why the Netflix monopoly should be impervious to change or breaking up any more than the old studios were, which owned their product and the theaters. The government sued to break it up. Yes, they did, but the government doesn't bust up trusts anymore.
3: They can't even bust up Facebook and Google. And of course, you know, the Hollywood studio system was intact for decades. I mean, it's still with us. It's not like it ever went away. They just had to stop owning theaters and some other things because of the paramount consent decrees. The streaming services are only on the rise now, and it's going to last for a long time. And there's a lot of competition, and Netflix and Amazon are only
0: growing and growing. In bank, which none of us much liked, There's a wonderful line from Louis B. Mayer showing visitors around his studio. He says, this is a business where the buyer of the movie gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies, and don't let anybody tell you different. The movie is trying to challenge that notion, but is there not a challenge? That, I think, is the best line in Mech.
3: Of course that wasn't true once, you know, videotapes, you know, VHS tapes and DVDs and Blu-rays came about. You could right. own the film yourself and have it in a library in your house.
0: And everybody does it.
3: Right, which you should still do because the streaming services want it to be like Louis B. Mayer says in Mank, that you don't own anything. And if you want to see it, you have to pay for it in a sense every time. It's a subscription model, so it's like paying your electric bill or your gas bill or something like that. It's just a bill that comes... You know, you're not paying for every drink of water you have out of your tap if you still drink water out of your tap. That's what a streaming service is for, for movies and television.
0: Leslie, in this year's Oscar list, is there one movie you'd embrace? I enjoyed the Borat
1: film a lot, though I don't think it's Academy Award. I mean, I, I'm a little embarrassed to think of it as an Academy Award winning film. Mm. I hear the, the, the best one is the uh, a Korean film. Yes, Minari. And, and I'm eager to see
0: it, but I have to pay to see it. <laughs> so I'm waiting a little bit. Scott, how about you? I like Nomadland, but I haven't seen the rest. What about
3: you? I think the best films were Minari and Promising Young Woman. A lot of the other Oscar-nominated films were more like plays that had been it had been expanded into films. And Minari and Promising Young Woman are not like that. Those are real movies to me.
0: What is it tell you that they get nominated?
3: Well, Hollywood always you know, rewards prestige productions as much as possible that reflect what producers want the world to think their values are. You
1: know so, what was amazing, Scott? What do you think the fact that Moonlight won the Academy Award
3: a few years ago? I thought that was a miracle. I thought it was too, yeah. And a wonderful thing. And it was interesting how Warren Beatty fumbled announcing it.
1: Yes, he he was really on the on the other track, <laughs> the old <Yes>. track. <laughs> and, and so it sort of had to be um, La La Land was La La Land. the you know, he announced. Yeah, but it really was, it was a miracle that, that it could be moonlight. And so every now and then, Chris, these
0: miracles occur. Those who say every good movie is a miracle, and you feel it, <laughs> as we do about Casablanca.
1: Well, Casablanca was a kind of slapdash miracle.
0: I'm nominating your book, Pill of Beans, as a kind of miracle too, Leslie. I cannot thank you enough and admire you enough for it. Thank you, Chris. Scott, thank you. You're one of a kind. Thank you for having me on. Moonlight
2: and love songs, never out of date. Hearts full of passion, jealousy, and hate. Woman need man, and man must have his mate. That no one can deny. Still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world will always welcome lovers
0: As time goes by A.S. Hamra's book of film criticism is titled The Earth Dies Streaming. His writing appears regularly in The Baffler. Leslie Epstein teaches fiction writing at Boston University. His new novel, Years in the Making, is titled Hill of Beans. Our show this week was produced by Adam Coleman and George Hicks, with engineering help from Chris Johnson and Michael Garth. Mary McGrath is known as Chief in our studio. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.